It's the year 2000. The prospects of intimacy are falling apart. You duck your head under the water and then scream. You wake up face down on a bar, a puddle of beer below you. You ask someone to tell you about their losses instead. Yet as they do, you don't experience the escapism you craved. You experience a double vision. It's wild reading this and the, watching the film. Yeah. I actually, I mean, I rewatched the movie first and then I, but I was, I, okay, well, I'll talk about it <laughs> when we're doing this. Yeah. So I'm here with Steph, a poet studying in the New Writers Project at UT Austin. And you can find her on Twitter at name and noun. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, yeah, we're talking about Tell Me, a collection of poems by Kim Adonisio and Requiem for a Dream, directed by Darren Aronofsky. And so these were both released in late 2000. Mm-hmm. And uh, sort of a wild uh, pairing, you know, I sort of surprised at uh, some, some of the connections here. And kind of just wanted to start reading the sort of beginning of this poem, Garbage. Okay. So it goes, don't think about where it goes after you tie it up in this white bag and squash it down into the can dragged out to the curb. Don't think of the stink of the truck backing up where the men in their filthy gloves hanging off the sides, cursing in the near dark of a new day in which somewhere someone is about to be thrown into a cell the way garbage is thrown into a deep pit for burning, the way bodies are thrown in to be shoveled over. Don't think about the dump, the scavenging rats, the reeking piles they tunnel through, the flattened shoes, the dolls with their eyes torn out, the pennies, the lost wedding ring, whatever has found its way there and won't return, except as a stain, a bad smell in the air, a poison seeding the clouds until it rains back down. But today the weather is lovely. And I feel like that, you know, just that bit really captures a lot of the overall vibe of the movie. Yeah. Um, and so you, you had suggested, I mean, both of these, but, you know, you, you, I had reached out to you about wanting to, you know, look at some more poetry stuff. And so you had suggested this book, Tell Me. And so maybe, maybe you could talk, introduce a bit like what, what, you know, I guess, made you think of this while you wanted to discuss Kim Adonisia's work. Yeah, well, I think like a lot of people right now, especially, you know, millennials and, and, and um, Gen Zers, um, I'm undergoing this wave of nostalgia for the late 90s slash early off. And these two works are sort of very representative of that time and of the sort of grittier notions of where society was headed, you know, amidst economic progress and um, and um, progress in the realm of civil rights and, and, and just like so many positive things were happening around that time period, but both Tell Me, this collection of poems, and obviously Requiem for a Dream, just sort of tunneled in on the grittier underbelly of people that were sort of being left behind by this narrative of progress. Um, Yeah, so I think that's what sort of tied these two together for me, plus the theme of addiction, right? And sort of the the greater uh, awareness, I guess, in the cultural consciousness of um, different types of addiction. Yeah, you'd also mentioned early on the ideas of shifting ideas around womanhood in particular. Mm-hmm. And so this, the, I mean, in the film, right, you have the younger Marion and then you have the mother, Sarah, and, you know, they're, they're both caught up in these different things. You know, Sarah's feeling kind of uh, abandoned and like she has nothing really going for her and caught up in this fantasy of wanting to be seen on TV and this like 
lovely dress and their yeah. hair and all of that. And that really is a lot of that sort of sentiment in these poems. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting because um, I, I, I sort of want to be careful to distinguish between the speaker, like the voice in these poems and Kim Adonisio herself, but it, it's so sort of clearly her that um, I, I hope you'll forgive me for just referring to her as Kim. Um, I mean, she's obviously a very, very different woman from the two that we um, see in Requiem for a Dream, which is, you know, this older woman, Sarah Goldfarb, and then Marion, the young woman who sort of spirals into a drug addiction. And yet it's it's very clear that they're all struggling to cope in their own way. So Sarah Goldfarb, this older woman, has a TV addiction and like she really wants to be on television and, and lose weight and fit into this red dress so she can like look good on television. Marion, this younger woman, like she has dreams about um, starting like a fashion boutique, but she's also addicted to drugs um, uh, in, in a way that really like undermines her being able to work towards her goals. Um, and then Kim, she just has had so much like turbulence in her personal life. You know, it seems like it, at least as portrayed in this collection of poems, like she's at, at the bar every night. She's, you know, uh, she's entangled with all these like sorts of relationships with men that aren't necessarily healthy and yeah like so she talks about her like relationship with Jin um in a really visceral way so yeah yeah I mean Marion right is is very different in that so she has the one sort of closed intimate relationship with Harry which uh, over the course of the film because of her addiction sort of spirals out into prostitution and so on Mm-hmm. which is a very sort of different dynamic than, you know, this, this whole, you know, poems about one night stands and so on. But uh, mm-hmm. there, there, there are these sort of dynamics of, you know, the, I guess, struggles around intimacy. And there, there's a scene in the film where Harry and Marion are in bed together and, you know, saying like, you know, she's the most beautiful girl he's ever seen. And so she's talking about how the, you know, people have said that to her a lot before, and it's never really meant anything. But when he says it, she feels really good. And there's a poem in the book called Intimacy that that I was reminded of where the so the speaker is at this uh, cafe mm-hmm. and has learned that the barista woman is one of the sort of exes of her current boyfriend and is sort of caught up thinking about like does she think about the boyfriend and does the boyfriend think about this this other woman and reflecting on her own relationships and how you know there are some ways in which there there was some distinct form of intimacy with former lovers that does sort of linger in her memory but that mostly a lot of stuff is sort of just receded and it's a sort of current relationship that really sort of has any sort of real weight for her in the sort of present. And, you know, I mean, I mean, you sort of see that in in the film, but, but it's, um, I don't know, it's, it's such a small snapshot really like the around a year passes, I think in the film, Mm -hmm. but um, I don't know. I mean, it's like uh, there's so so little happens that there's, they're just caught up in these very narrow mm-hmm. loops. And so you have a lot of that sort of sadness in the poems, but it, it, it's also interestingly, I mean, she's thinking on very vast scales in some ways, right? The, of, of this whole life and 
different sort of eras and and so on but the the film you know is two hours long but mm -hmm. it's really just sort of like this one moment of like really just sort of crashing down yeah I mean it's really interesting in that you know the the, the film uses uh, these like short montages like the scenes in the film are sort of shorter than a standard film um, and there's almost this like splicing effect. I'm not like very good with film terminology, but it basically like uh, splices these sort of short scenes together to, to create a montage um, of, uh, like you said, it, it's, it's over the period of a year. And sometimes, especially towards the end, uh, that splicing effect accelerates and you get this real heightened tension as things sort of come to a head. And that's kind of, it's a little, it is reminiscent of the way this collection of poems works and that this is also a collection of snapshots, though, albeit, albeit from different periods in her life, but it kind of has that same like montage quality to it. And like you said, addresses some of these sort of same themes about intimacy and womanhood. I'm really glad you brought up the poem intimacy because there's, I, I noticed this like some sort of similar visual themes uh, across a couple of these poems and, and in the in the movie. Um, so in an intimacy, Kim is looking at this woman at the cafe and she talks about her lipstick being red and, and her hair being red. And then of course, there's a, a poem in here too uh, called What Women, What Do Women Want? Uh, and the first line is, I want a red dress. It's actually a, a really, really famous poem from this collection. And, and of course, in Requiem for a Dream, Sarah Goldfarb, the, the older woman, is obsessed with like losing weight to the point that she's like taking speed uh, to fit into this red dress so she can go on television, go on to this like game show. And I just thought that was really interesting that red for all of these women represents, you know, vitality and social acceptance. Though in Kim's case, I think like when if you read the rest of the poem, it's uh, it's very much she wants uh, to to be seductive uh, in a way and and sort of uh, instigate desire in the people that look at her. Whereas in uh, Sarah Goldfarb's case, it's like the dress that she wore to her son's graduation, a time when her husband was alive, and it was a time when she had people to care for you know, at home and, and when she was um, sort of proud of her role as a, as a mother and a wife. So it has a slightly different sort of register, but it still represents some level of like just fitting into society in, in, in the template of a woman that, that makes. Yeah. And there's also the recurring vision that Harry has where he, he imagines Marion at the end of the pier Oh, yeah. In like the red dress, like really stark against the blue sea and, and all of that, you know, maybe one of her designs even. But mm -hmm. yeah, it, it has that register with Sarah where it's, as you're saying, you know, it's it's partly looking back, but it's also, you know, this is, it has a, the memory of the graduation and so on. And, you know, she is, her, her vision is that she's going to be on TV and lovingly embrace her son who she's kind of grown distant from. He's, mm -hmm. you know, off in his own world and addicted to drugs and keeps stealing her television and selling it off. And she has to go buy it back. And then he sells it again. And she chains it to the radiator and tries to comfort him in this opening scene. It's like, oh no, the chain's not for you. It's for the burglars or whatever. And But it, it, it clearly is for him. And also, you know, you'd mentioned the splicing thing. And mm -hmm. it was also actually one of the interesting 
visual dynamics of, you know, that scene where they're in bed together and he's, he's saying she's the most beautiful girl and, and so on. It's very intimate, but it's also it's split down the middle. And mm-hmm. so even though they're right there next to each other and touching each other, it's like there's this visual sense of disconnect where there's something not quite right there. And yeah. that's sort of the one of the progressions of the, of the film where it's like they're on some level that they're, they're so attached to each other and at the end he's sort of you know agonizing that this realization that she won't come see him and then you know she calls him and has this like tear running down her face about like you know i want you to come back today and he's like i will and she also knows that's not gonna happen and you know i mean he really i mean kind of just like sells her off basically halfway through the film as well and so there's there's this tension between you know very strongly felt intimacy and you know I think in both of these works where it's like this realization of you know some of that is is a sort of illusion where you know people sort of just go through these sort of series of relationships and and experience this intense intimacy but then it's also then it goes away and then you end up in like a new relationship but then there's there's this risk that's a little dramatized more extremely in the film but that like you just sort of spiral out at some point and well you know what if there's not that new intimacy on the horizon yeah yeah definitely i i mean yeah a lot of a lot of these poems address this idea of almost like a sort of like like this atomized you know individualistic experience right even even though she's writing a lot about relationships with men she's also writing a lot of scenes where I'm talking about Kim Adenibio by the way <laughs> she's she she writes a lot about these times when she's just alone and thinking about death and dying alone. And, you know, she connects it a lot of the times to notions in physics uh, or uh, ideas about counting. Um, I think the best way to illustrate this is actually to to read one of these poems, if, if you don't mind. Yeah, that'd be great. So let's see. Yeah. So Here's a snippet from her poem, Physics. Um, Suppose, the scientist said, the atom were the size of an orange. Then imagine that orange as big as the earth. The electrons inside it would be only the size of cherries. Cherries, you think. And inserting your quarter, you see one sitting on an ice floe in the Antarctic. A pinprick of blood and another in a village in northern Africa being rolled on the tongue of a dusty child while the dancer shakes her breast at you displaying nipples you know you'll never bite into in this lifetime. All you can do is hold tight to the last useless coins and repeat to yourself that they're solid. They're definitely solid. You can definitely feel so, so this poem physics is set in a sort of, I, I don't even know what to call this, like a, like a pay to, you know, I don't frequent these types of establishments, Tim, but um, it's, it's like one of these establishments where you insert like a coin and then there's a dancer that dances for you. Um, and, and so she's, she's writing about a guy who's like in the process of doing that and tying it into this idea of physics and the distance between, you know, electrons. Um, and the outer edge of the atom and so forth. And this, I actually think this ties into your last podcast on, um, you know, elementary particles. Um, It's sort of that same idea of just like the atomized individual existence and never really being able to reach anybody else or have a significant enduring connection with anyone else. Right. Yeah. And here, you know, as it is often in the elementary particles, it's this very 
overtly transactional exchange. And yeah, that, that image of the solid coin, you know, and really wanting to feel that sense of solidity is interesting, where it's like in contrast to the vast distance between any two electrons, you know, thinking about that, that sort of atomic scale and how even in this, you know, hunk of metal that feels so solid, it's like there's actually these, these huge gaps on some level. And it's sort of like he feels this sort of alienation in this exchange with this, this woman who he's sort of paying to see dance. But, you know, you want to believe on some level that there's something somewhere that is like very solid and real that this is like, you know, like a simulation of something like real that you could find and, you know, have that experience of, you know, the the nipples, you know, you'll never bite into in this lifetime. And this sense that like, maybe there is never this moment where things really come together in like this absolute true sense, because there's always that sort of atomic gap. Yeah, it's interesting that, you know, I, I think both Kim and keep calling her Kim. I should say Adonisio. Um, but I I think that both Adonisio and um, Aronofsky are very very skeptical about the idea of of, of bridging that gap in 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 a, in a sustainable and fulfilling way. I thought it was interesting. This book starts with a little quote: "Let us sing together." No, we know nothing. And this comes from. Um, Antonio Machado. Um, and the the movie starts out with this ritualistic chanting on television that that Sarah Sarah Goldfarb is watching. Um, and it is it's this idea of like the individual projecting their voice into the void, right? And and whether that really ultimately uh comes to any sort of fruition uh, or, or or has any sort of lasting meaning. Um, it, I, you mentioned sort of offhandedly that you thought this collection of poetry was a lot less brutal in its approach, um, than, uh, Requiem for a Dream overall. Um, but I, I'm not actually sure about that because I, I think it's, I, I kind of see them going in the same direction in terms of not necessarily believing that this singing or chanting ultimately results. I mean, it's, you know, I don't know if brutal is the right word, but just a certain level, the, um, like the, as, as particularly struck by the image at the end of the, the film of Harry, you know, in the hospital bed, you know, mm-hmm. miss, missing most of his left arm, writhing around in agony, you know, the tubes pulling out of the arm and the sort of nurse he doesn't know is sort of sitting there like trying to comfort him and you know the, there's something about that that image of like the the amputation that you know I don't know if I would necessarily say it's like you know worse than some of the stuff you get in these these poems you know there's there's like cancer patients and so on and all of that mm-hmm. but there there's the the sort of climax of the film is so um heavy-handed in in a way yeah you know in a way that the the poetry isn't which, you know, I guess one of the things I was struggling to think about is how, you know, I wouldn't say it's like a bad film by any means, but there, there's something about the style of it that's so uh, just sort of intensely in your face in, about some things, whereas the 
poetry is 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 it is these little montages as you're saying but it's also like i don't know it just feels like all of these very real small details that just sort of are presented in a way that, that packs a lot of weight but there, i don't you know i don't think there's any like image that's quite the same as like oh this like top-down view of this writhing you know yeah. amputee maybe brutal is not the word because there's there's some you know sort of brutality in the the poems but yeah I'm just giving you a hard time I I know I, I I hear exactly what you're saying you know prior to doing this I was telling a couple of friends that I was going to rewatch Requiem for a Dream and they were like oh I would never rewatch that movie <laughs> you know because it, it, yeah it, it relies so heavily on body horror a lot of the time, which is the thing that splits a lot of people out and can be pretty heavy handed, like you said. But yeah, I mean, I one question I thought it was sort of interesting to consider as I watched the movie and then reread the collection was whether, you know, what whether Adonisio and Aronofsky were skeptical of the power of their artistic medium to convey what they wanted to convey you know there's a, a poem called the embers which is the name of a bar that Adonisio goes to in in which she says uh, she talks about heading out after she teaches a poetry class to the embers um, she says after class the embers restored my faith in the kind of failure that is sufficient unto itself without requiring the amplifications of art and I thought that was just like so incisive and self-aware that you know she's 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 teaching these students creative writing poetry and yet she's sort of skeptical about the medium and, and it, its ability to capture like the reality of real gritty failures <laughs> she sort of describes these people that move through the bar these like itinerants who um, probably don't have like the best personal lives. And, and, you know, in, in some way, I sort of, some ways I sort of see that mirrored in uh, Requiem for a Dream with um, the, the television set. And at one point, Sarah Goldfarb, like hallucinate uh, the people in the TV, like coming out in the cast and the crew coming out of the TV and like rearranging the furniture in her living room and stuff. And she quickly realizes that her dream is literally transforming into a nightmare. And, and so there's, to some extent, I think Aronofsky is also skeptical of the sort of visual medium of video to really capture these lives but he kind of pins that on tv and i, I i'm not i wasn't sure if he extended that criticism to to film in general or if he uh, or if he thought he was uh he was actually adequately kept right yeah i mean there's the you know i mean there's a lot of uh stylistic parallels you know intentionally done between like the tv show which is like this weirdly dark like visually show of, of like just this guy in front of this audience and you know he's just chanting like be excited be yeah. excited and then it's like that that's like really closely recreated at the end with the the uh, Marian prostitution group scene with all the guys around chanting and flashing the lights. And it's this really seedy, showy kind of scene that's similar to the wildness of the TV show. And I mean, I, I guess, you know, one difference is that the show is 
trying to sell this lonely old woman something where Mm -hmm. it's like, you know, buy this $40 tape and it'll teach you the key to losing weight or whatever. And, you know, preying on this, this anxiety around like, oh, you know, no, uh, no red meats and no processed sugars and so on. And she's driving herself like delirious, trying to like deal with this, this TV show. And, you know, I guess, I guess, you know, the difference in, in some extent is that the the film isn't really trying to sell anything. It's sort of, you know, wholly critical. Uh, but yeah, I, I, I do see what you mean about the sort of maybe sense of anxiety around like, you know, it is ultimately making you feel bad in similar ways that the TV show is making Sarah feel bad. And there's the you know, as you're saying, like, she sees the people on the screen coming out as like this sort of holograms, and they're like making fun of her little knickknacks and the unclean roof and so on. And she's gets so sad. It's a really great performance in that scene. She gets so sad. And she's like, well, what do you expect? I'm here alone. There's no one, you know, would you do better? Yeah. And uh, I think going back to the embers poem, you know, the there's the sense of like the difficulty of capturing that real sense of failure and I think there's also a personal anxiety where so she's teaching poetry and so part of that failure you know now and in the future is is going to be sort of statistically some of her students where she sees they all want to see themselves as this latent genius and they want her to sort of affirm that potential and affirm that like they'll they'll surely succeed in writing. And, and, you know, I guess sort of the sense that it's, you know, it's just sort of not going to work out that all of her students are going to play out to be these genius poets who thrive and so on. And, you know, there's the real sort of, I don't know, emotional challenge in that sort of teaching a mentorship role where it's like, you know, you you, got to do the best that you can, but it's also like, you know, it's it's really not going to work out. And when, when what you're teaching and in particular is poetry (laughs) and it's like you know if you sort of fail at that there's not like um necessarily like a step below it that it's like oh you're not you know this genius poet but at least you're you know making a healthy living or whatever as a sort of like mid-tier poet right (laughs) yeah (sighs) you're telling me tim (laughs) um no i think that's like a really astute observation um and I think, you know, this kind of goes towards just, I think the, maybe the, the, uh, the realization of the collective unconscious of the the damage uh, that, that neoliberalism had already wrought and is going to continue to uh, sort of uh, damage uh, people in terms of their desires that they were never actually going to, going to be able to attain. Um, like the, this, this, this TV show, right? Like she keeps hearing the sky say over and over, "We have a winner. We have a winner." Um, and, and it's you know, sort of similar in the poetry world. Like there's very few winners. Like statistically, you know, most ninety nine percent are not going to be quote unquote winners. Are not going to be able to make a living off of writing poetry. And so to have to sort of engage in selling that dream to some extent is, you know, very uncomfortable, I think, for a lot of people. One thing I noticed about the television show that Sir Goldfarb was watching, right, and you mentioned this, but um, the, the television host is 
basically communicating ways to lose weight. And he says, like, number one, you have to give up red meat. Uh, Number two, you have to give up processed sugar. And he keeps teasing what the third thing is going to be. And I don't think we ever find that out. Uh, But sort of as the movie unfolds, my suspicion was that the third thing was everything. Like you have to give up your entire life to this dream because ultimately you can't. The the thing that you want, the the thing that Sarah Goldfarb and actually everyone else, I, I, I... I don't know if you can tell she's my, she was definitely my favorite character in the movie, but the thing that she ultimately wants is um, to be happy and to see her son happy and and successful. Uh, And that's not a thing that you can win through a game show, right? Or it's, it's this weird combination of a game show and also, you know, also like a programming about how, how to lose weight. And she watches it while eating bonbons, which uh, just seems like such a form of self-harm. But yeah, it, it just my suspicion was that third thing that the television host keeps teasing is just everything. You have to give up everything for this and you still won't. Att- yeah, I mean, I think it was basically like the tease is because they're trying to sell this like $40 tape or whatever. And, uh, you know, at the same time, it's like she goes to like a doctor for help and is is sold, you know, these, these uh, speed basically. And, you know, is, is re- that sort of is, is driving her mad. And, you know, Harry comes over, is like halfway across the room. It's like, I could hear you like grinding your teeth from here. And is ultimately, you know, she's kind of like just mentally wiped and and so on. There, there's also a dynamic of, you know, she's you were saying um, you can't win having like success for your son on a game show exactly mm-hmm. and but there's also this dynamic of like wanting to um like this social among her peers like wanting people to see that happen you know see him happily married and so on and you know she becomes this sort of like legend among these other old ladies who are in a similar position of hers where it's like oh you're going to be on television. They're all sort of thrilled for her. And she's like the star among them because they want to believe as well. And that sort of possibility. But you're saying like the idea of like, you give up everything. And there was a poem in in the book that really reminded me of her story, where it was like, there's a riddle my daughter tells. I don't remember all of it, but the end goes like this. Dead people eat it. But if you eat it, you die. The answer is nothing, she says, and tells the whole thing over saying nothing until it's something. And, yeah. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know, it's just uh, this really striking image. I don't really know the sort of timeline of like, you know, food trends and diet trends and so on. But mm-hmm. I think there's this idea that's going on in both of them about like, oh, just eat nothing and everything will get better in your life. And obviously it's self-destructive at a certain point. Yeah. I mean, I definitely thought about that, that poem too. There is some interesting sort of food imagery in this collection of poems you know she talks about it so in this poem the numbers I'll just read a snippet from this kind of captures some of the same vibe so in the poem the numbers she writes I want to count them I want them to end I don't I don't want to wonder how many people are sitting in restaurants about to close down which of them will wander the sidewalks all night while the pies revolve in the refrigerated dark how many days are left of my life How much does it matter if I manage to say one true thing about it? How often have I tried? How often failed and fallen into depression? So I thought that was kind of 
uh, it had it had a certain resonance with with the imagery in the film too, especially the pies revolving and the refrigerated dark. Because you know Sarah Goldfarb at one point starts hallucinating floating sandwiches and cupcakes and and things like that, um, and she's like sort of walking around in the dark because she's on speed, <laughs> she can't like stop moving. Um, and so just this like sort of insomnia and like um, Mela's. Um, you know, uh, wanting to, wanting to be a part of the world and yet at the same time wanting to, uh, be a, be a part, like, like apart from it, <laughs> you know, like, and, and, um, and, and barricading yourself from it because it's, it's too painful. It's too much. And you can never, um, form actual genuines with most of the people that you past read. I do think that it is interesting to think about how Aronofsky and Adonisio treat the idea of friendship in, in these works, because you you mentioned the sort of old ladies in Sarah Goldfarb's building who get super stoked for her to go on TV and help her to dye her hair and give her the name of this like quack doctor who, who prescribes her speed. Um, and she at at one point she says to her son when he comes to visit she says to Harry, um, you know he he says like what about your friends like because because she's like sort of ranting at him about how she doesn't there really isn't a point for her to get up in the morning and she says it's not the same she you know it's not the same as when she had a husband who was alive to care for as when. Um, Harry was still around to care for him. Like after her family left, um, these other sort of old women, um, she doesn't perceive the friendships to be as valuable or a reason to like wake up every day. And I think that like Aronofsky actually sort of, this is one way in which I think he, he sort of tempers the brutality of the film. He actually shows that these, these women actually really do care for one another, even though Sarah Goldfarb doesn't realize the value of these relationships because in the end, when she's like hospitalized and is having a mental breakdown, it sh- the, the movie shows these, um, these, these couple of women from her building actually go to the hospital and crying over how just how, how, how much she's deteriorated and they really truly care for her. And she has not sort of seen that. She's sort of seen them as like instrumental in her desire for like a base level of social acceptance and to help her to get on stuff, but she hasn't valued them fully. And in Adonisio's collection, there's a beautiful poem called Last Git, which is about a group of friends who gather in the hospital, um, a dying, uh, a, a dying writer, dying, they're all there to sort of celebrate his life and be with him you know at, in his illness and and so i think both of uh these artists see possibility for redemption or hope in friendship right but unfortunately a lot of their characters forget that right yeah i mean there's a great line where sarah's talking to harry and she's she's saying like didn't you see me sitting out there with the the other ladies like I had such a great spot you know and imagines that like the only reason they're interested in her at that point is the the tv thing which you know they are excited about but but yeah you see as as you're saying like she doesn't really understand that there's there's interest there I mean I think there is some level uh inevitably of shallowness where you have this whole big group of people and like you know some of them you know probably don't care about her as much as the two we see in despair at the end but you know there, there's something about that that mass affirmation that is really sort of appealing even if it's sort of short-lived and and 
really doesn't fill the void left by her husband. And, you know, I mean, interestingly, you know, in terms of uh, friendship, right, there's also Harry and, and Tyrone. And, you know, I mean, they're sort of bound together partly through the sort of shared addiction and going through that together and being in this whole struggle of trying to really come out on top in some way. Uh, but they also have this sort of uh, similar background where we see Tyrone in this flashback as a kid, you know, is, is saying to his mother, like, oh, you know, I'm, one day I'm going to be like super successful and so on. And mm-hmm. The mother's like, oh, you don't have to accomplish anything like that. You know, you just have to love your mother. And, you know, we later see him staring at a photo of his mother sort of, you know, depressed. And there, there's that strained relationship there. And, you know, what we, I think, also get with Marion within this dynamic is like she's from a somewhat wealthy family and and yet you know we see like that it's not that's not the only factor that can lead someone into the state that Harry and Tyrone are in but there is this shared experience of these sort of strained relationships and what's re- really tragic with Sarah's character is she so desperately wants that relationship with her son and yet yet somehow like the it just doesn't work out because he's so lost to this addiction yeah i mean i i think the the relationship or, or like the the vision of motherhood is really interesting in um yeah in, in both this collection and and the movie because yeah i i mean harry is sort of disconnected from his mother but there's uh quite a few scenes in which he professes his love for her, you know, to his girlfriend, uh, Marianne, and um, says that he ultimately just wants her to be happy. You know, that's why he buys her a bigger TV from Macy's. And uh, and Tyrone, his friend, also, there's a couple scenes where Tyrone looks at a picture of, you know, his presumably deceased mother and has these flashbacks to uh, times when he shared, uh, you know, really really wonderful moments with his mother as a child. And I, I noticed, I, you know, I wrote down in my notes, where, where are the fathers, right? Like, it, I can't help but think that Aronofsky in particular is in, implicating the fathers here, the missing fathers in these people's sort of spirals of misery. I mean, on the one hand, obviously, Harry's father is dead. So, that, you know, nothing against against him but certainly um marion the the young woman her she has a very she only alludes to a relationship with her father but it sounds very fraught her father is, seems to be like big in the garment industry like making women's women's panties or something as harry derisively says at one point so she has like a relationship to her father that that you know he's like paying for her apartment and stuff like that but she's she could be cut off at any point, um, you know, which is part of why she wants to go into business herself with this fashion boutique, but they need to make the money for that through dealing drugs. Um, but also, you know, uh, there's um, these sort of toxic men that take advantage of her and, and Harry and sort of their, their like naivete, um, right? So, so she has her, her, she sort of as a substitute father figure, there's this therapist who she is now sort of seeing when his wife is out of town, either to just go out to dinner with him or to to go to dinner with him and sleep with him for money. And, you know, clearly this is like a completely unethical and abusive relationship, especially between a therapist and or former therapist and their patient. And I thought that was kind of interesting because there's a there's actually a poem in um in Tell Me that that's 
also about how toxic therapy is. Um, let me just find it here. Yeah. So um, the, the poem is titled Therapy. And I'll just read it because it's really short. My brother's in the house. I close my door. He's in the kitchen. Bottles, knives. He breaks the lock, drags me by one arm across the floor. A small bird thrums its wings inside the clock. Now it's coming out. It's keeping track of each indignity. That helpless day, my father's drinking. Christ, the whole sick drama of my childhood's on display like a document in a museum. And you sit listening and nodding like those toys I've seen, their heads on springs. It's too ridiculous, this ordering the noise the past makes into what's it for? Time's up. You're in the house. I'm through the door. So the the quote unquote you here in this poem is this therapist that she's like divulging, you know, her, her really, it sounds like, uh, unfortunately, like a, she was abused as a child by her brother, as well as father, alcoholic father. And, you know, the therapist sort of morphs into those, uh, those male figures by the end, like you're in the house, right? And, and so I don't know, I just, I just saw I just saw a resonance there between this idea of like the, the the absent fathers and then the therapist who's like a stand-in, but who is also ultimately harming these women. Right. Yeah, that seems to repeat the sense of coldness and neglect. And, you know, it's interesting. I didn't actually catch the bit in the film that uh, Marion's father worked in the garment industry because then it's like, you know, she's trying to kind of pursue kind of the same path as him. In a mm-hmm. way, right, and so there's that idolization there. Uh, but instead of really like working with her and helping pursue her dreams, or just sort of spending quality time with her, right, he just sort of is like, oh, you know, she has problems, so I'm just going to pay therapist and not really like, you know, vet him in any way or really follow up with her about how that's going. It's just like you need to do this, or we're going to cut you out financially. And they already stopped talking to her at some point in the film, and you know, it's it's this. It is this very neglectful relationship where it's like, you know, somehow I'll just, uh, if we just force you to go through this therapy, somehow that will make things better as if it's a replacement for the actual relationship. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, maybe going back as well to that, that transactional dynamic with the, the coin slot. And the, the woman dancing kind of thing where it's like, you know, I just pay into this and the therapist sorts things out. You know, that's the therapist's job and so on. And really kind of sets her up for this this later, you know, experience where she gets into sort of more overt prostitution and, you know, is is really disgusted with the whole thing. And, you know, is there's the really sinister scene where so she calls up the the guy and hangs up immediately and then calls him back immediately and like whimper is high and then like you just hear him like laugh very sinisterly and there there's the this knowing sense of like how desperate she is for this and it's not just i think the sense of addiction but you know that knowing that she's also emotionally broken in these ways that he can exploit. And there's something very sort of wild going on in there. And then, you know, in, in the, the film, it's, it's this addiction to heroin. But in the, the poetry, you know, there's these recurring, you know, descriptions of, of drinking and, you know, the, the bar scene, like in the, the first poem you mentioned, the numbers. But there's there's actually two separate poems where drinking is is presented as very sexual in a way so there's the divorcee and gin about 
you know, mm-hmm. drinking these frosted pints and desire, and it's also destructive. And then there's other, there's this other poem, Affair, which is, you know, it's like, God, it's sexual opening a beer when you swore you wouldn't drink tonight. Yeah. And, and you know, so that, that sense of like, you know, you have, have uh, these relationships and you make these promises to get better and so on and then it sort of just folds in on itself and instead of sorting things out with you know the father or the mother or the friend or whatever it's just like this uh very like self-directed intimacy and eroticism of like this this taboo and this you know indulgence and so on that that i think really captures a lot of the feelings that's sort of going on sort of implicitly in the you know the performances and so on yeah i mean i think that adonisio in particular walks this like very fine between um you know not in, in, in between presenting the 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 seedy sort of underbelly of addiction and also at the same time presenting desire as a, a positive a, a positive thing that is what makes life worth living right I, I think there's this very fine distinction between desire and addiction and in one of her poems titled for desire i'm just going to read a few lines from it she writes to hell with the next world and its pallid angels swooning and sighing like victorian girls i want this world i want to walk into the ocean and feel it trying to drag me along like i'm nothing but a broken bit of scratched glass and I want to resist. And I just think that's so beautiful, right? Like there, the the idea that these sensual, sensuous experiences are absolutely what makes life worth living and, and what makes being embodied in this world like a wonderful experience. The, the flip side of that is addiction. The flip side of that is not being able to help yourself to you know, X glasses of gin um, or beer that night, you know? And I, I think that, you know, I, I think that Adonisio walks that line a very, uh, just just in an interesting way. Uh, whereas I'm not quite sure that, that Aronofsky quite presents the, the, the positive face of, of these sort of uh, embodied sensual experiences. It seems like it's always <laughs> sort of negative in Requiem for a Dream. Yeah, it's this really, I mean, it, the sort of like suffering porn in a way, right? Where it's like, it's just, there, the, there is really no, none of none of like the plot lines play out well at all. You know, even, even the like side characters, you know, we see them in the end huddling together in despair. And, you know, everyone just really suffers very cruelly. And yeah, I mean, I think in the poems, there, there is that glimmer of, you know, not not even necessarily like a, this like upward trajectory plot wise, right? Because that's, that's something where because we're, we're not looking really at narrative fiction, we're looking at these poems that you don't really need necessarily need to have like at the end of the poem, everything's resolved and happy and so on. Mm-hmm. But because it it's just like this really incisive images and associations and so on, you really can get into that sense of like the good and the or, or at least in some cases the potential for good or this is like the sentimentality or, you know, all these little niceties that are sort of embedded within these these scenes. But the the film is just this really harshly dramatic downward spiral that really leaves everyone off just catastrophe. Yeah, absolutely. That's not to say that I didn't 
you know, really enjoy it. Yeah, I I, I really loved uh, revisiting both of these works. There, there's also one thing that struck me is the um, there's a bit of weirdness that occurs in both of these. So, you know, we had mentioned the hallucination scene where, where Sarah sort of sees the people in the TV coming out and they're like these little holograms or whatever. And there's also a scene where she imagines the fridge eating her. Yeah. And mm. so I was reminded of that in this poem, Aliens, where it's like the phone rings, don't answer it. You reach for a fat eclair, bite into it while the room fills with aliens, wandering star-riddled creatures who vibrate in the rapturous air, longing to come down and join you, looking for a place they can rest. And, you know, I mean, that's sort of part of the idea, I think, in there is this idea of these sorts of uh, strangers you run into, you know, in, in life and in bars, whatever, that, you know, sort of really have nothing to do with you in a way, but that they, they, you know, they're, they're looking for a place to rest and, you know, you sort of just end up with them and, you know, but th there's, there's something in some of the images and some of these poems where I feel like that they're, they're both engaging in that, that sense of like, you know, if not hallucination, then it's just like the, the way in which things really just seem so odd and, you know, unreal even while there, there's something very visceral, re, viscerally real going on. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I think this the 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 fridge that that's coming to bite her, right? I mean, that that sort of slots into this overall theme of um, just a hunger that that can't be filled. Like there's her physical hunger, but then there's also I mean, all of these characters hunger for something. And I that, that kind of reminds me of a of, of a bit in in this poem, Generations which is sort of about Adonisio's heritage and, and the fact that, you know, along sort of along, in, in her background, um, her grandfather was an immigrant and then her, and then her father made a life for, for her family in the, in the New York City area. Um, but she says at one point, she writes, what is the past to me that I have to go back pronouncing that word in the silence of a cemetery? What is the stone coming apart in my hands like bread? Name I eat and expel. And just this idea of eating, this, this hunger for the past or a relationship that you can sort of define easily, right? Yeah, I I, I kind of wanted to talk about the setting too, just like this, this neighborhood, the Coney Island neighborhood in New York City is one that has historically often resisted gentrification, unlike uh, parts of Manhattan and Brooklyn now that are just completely gentrified, right? Um, and this idea that these sort of historically rooted immigrant neighborhoods are a way to basically fulfill that hunger and longing to not be alienated and to have significant and meaningful relationships. But we see that crumbling in the movie, as well as in this poem, Generations, uh, which ends with the lines, um, this is the city of grandparents, immigrants, arrivals, where I've come too late with my name, an empty plate. This is the place. Right? So again, it's that this, this imagery of eating or not eating of feeding or being fed upon, like, I, I find that so fast. Yeah. And then, you know, part of the sort of plot of the film is basically, you know, Harry and Tyrone are so kind of, I don't know, I mean, sort of first failed in, in very, like, significant ways by the, their sort of immediate society and community. Uh, but then also they're failed in the, like, 
drug trade, which is like getting like violent. Like the the they end up driving like down to Florida, trying to like score some connection. And this is sort of where it all goes wrong. You know, it's something. You know, there's a something about that whole trip. You know, really gets sort of deep into the kind of dreaminess of the whole thing where like you know all all the scenes with like the the arm and the prison something you know something about how it's sort of shot and the rapidity of of the cuts and like you know we we never really like get immersed into any of those outside spaces outside of like the Coney Island scene mm-hmm. where it's like it just all feels so unreal yeah and yeah i mean i don't know there's something about you know going back to the idea of intimacy where it's like what what i think adonisia really captures in a lot of these poems is how it's like you know intimacy isn't strictly about like great positive you know best of all time experiences but it's just like it's also that space where you know you can be at this bar and want to die and rest your head like within a pile of spilled beer and think like i want to die here among all these great people i just met and it's really sort of bleak in a lot of ways but there's that intimacy of it that I think she's really struggling with like, you know, this isn't the most desirable situation, but it's also like, what's the alternative? And I think with the film, we kind of see them kind of branch out into the world. And like, all of a sudden, it's just like, it's, it's even worse, because there's nothing for them there. And then, you know, Tyrone ends up in this prison with these like racist guards and so on and you know it's really bleak this is a pro lockdown film for sure yeah i mean everything just starts like unraveling as soon as they leave coney island like sarah tries to go to madison avenue to figure out when the tv show is gonna have her on yeah like harry and tyrone are trying to drive down to miami to to score some more dope and then marion goes into manhattan to basically like prostitute herself at a sex party so she can get you know more heroin and it's just like yeah as soon as they leave their neighborhood just stuff just gets worse and worse and and it's like you said it's yeah you you might feel alienated in in your own sort of neighborhood and you might not feel like your connections with your neighbors your you know your immediate neighbors or the people at your local dive bar are that deep or meaningful but there's something to hold on to right and if you sort of forsake that then you truly have nothing then then you're truly in strange environments where people don't give a shit about you. Um, so yeah, in, in that way, I think both of these works suggest turning to your local community and trying to find some sort of peace in those relationships. Yeah, there's also, I mean, some things this is, I mean, going a, a bit into like my sort of, I guess, personal obsessions, but something striking with this is, you know, these are 2000 and we see, you know, some advancement with technology where he gets the mother this like flat screen TV, which I think, I feel like the the TV he gets her for 2000 is like a really like nice, like cutting edge TV. It's huge mm-hmm. widescreen. Um, but it's like, this is like, you have like the dot com bubble and, you know, the matrix is like the year before and, and all of this. And it's like, so you have these dynamics of like alienation in both of these and you know i i can sort of see like in Edenizio's like you know i mean if you don't really have these sorts of 
serious experiences of like the online world, like, you know, you're not going to write poems about them, but it's something that, that sort of st strikes me sometimes looking at these, like, you know, this film about alienation in like 2000, uh, but it's, it's still caught up in the, this sort of TV media world, mm -hmm. uh, even as, you know, you have this sort of like, you know, personal computing has already sort of had its initial boom and, and so on. I don't know, there, there's that, that isn't there, but I feel like it, it is part of the wider cultural framing that is sort of underpinning the, the sort of sentiment that's sort of shared in the bit of um, synchronicity between these two works where it's like, you know, what really makes the sense of deep alienation popular enough that like both these works sort of come out and sort of thrive in the same moment. I think is, you know, not wholly about sort of the rise of personal computers, but there's something, you know, that's also going on there that is, I think, really kind of, I don't know, Im implicit in both of these. But this is, um, that's sort of just something that, that strikes me that I sort of think about, you know, with the, you know, just the year 2000 is, is so much like the kind of height of that. And yet. Yeah, absolutely. Well, they didn't, they, they haven't figured out that you contact people on Twitter to podcast with. So their sort of downfall. Yeah, <laughs> that, that would be, um, you know, the, the alternate ending is where instead of trying to get on television, Sarah becomes this like cutting edge, you know, early gen internet star and yeah. gets seen by millions of people that way. Yeah, and I assume Marianne would have like an OnlyFans, but it would be equally bleak. Yeah, start, starts trying to like pitch her clothing designs and then turns out people only want to pay to see her take the clothing designs off or something. Yeah. I thought there was this great bit in this poem, Things That Don't Happen, that sort of captures kind of, you know, I mean, the, in some cases, like scene by scene, what's going on in the film, but also a lot of the sort of sentiment of it where, you know, we start looking at Harry and Tyrone hauling off the TV to pawn off and you know, the mother goes and has to retrieve it. And, you know, there's kind of unfriendly terms with this guy at this point where it's like, he keeps doing it and so on. And so there's this passage in the middle of the poem about this eulogy. Mm -hmm. And Adonisio writes, this is a eulogy for the things that don't happen for the seal born, the unstamped passport, the ring given back or pawned or simply tossed into a drawer with the final papers. The ones that say you failed as everything fails, while each day the tiny accumulations, the insignificant actions, destroy those shimmerings in the air, those sparks thrown off, the fire of the actual consuming everything. Yeah, that's a great bit. Yeah. So, I mean, just really, you know, beautiful writing in this collection. So thank you for suggesting this and coming on and discussing these works. Yeah, I'm so glad you liked it. Um, and thanks for indulging my nostalgia for these early on yeah i mean it's it's such a you know i mean a wild time that's still has this lingering relevance and yeah i think there's so much going on in these two works mm -hmm.